everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fix. I'm joined by a very special guest today, Dr. Peter Williams. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you've heard of his work, but now you're going to hear from him today. So Peter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you. So I'll read a little bit of your introduction. Uh, you are the principal for us here, CEO is maybe mm-hmm. a more familiar term, of Tyndall House Cambridge, educated at the University of Cambridge. Um, got your PhD in ancient languages related to the Bible. Of course, done work in so many different areas. Taught at Cambridge, University of Aberdeen, given lectures around the world. Was on the translation oversight committee for the English Standard Version, ESV. Previous book is called Can We Trust the Gospels? which I've said on this podcast before is a book that every Christian and every skeptic should read. It's just fantastic. Today, though, we want to talk about your new book, which is coming out. I think if you're listening to this, it comes out today. For us, it comes out maybe tomorrow or the next day. The Surprising Genius of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, Peter, I I would definitely consider myself part of the group that you identify in the first part of the book who had never really thought about the genius of Jesus before. Even having been a pastor, taught the, you know, parables and stories and amazing things that Jesus says, for some reason that category just never jumped into my mind. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of the time people say, well, because Jesus is God, therefore he must know everything, and so therefore he's genius. But what they don't think about is the evidence that we actually have in the text of the Gospels of super, super cleverness. Mm. Um, And that's what I wanted to have a look at, particularly about half of the book is based around this one story that Jesus told of the two sons in Luke 15 and showing the intricacy of that. That's actually his longest story, about three minutes long. Um, And I think we didn't even begin to look at Jesus's short sayings, his memes, mm-hmm. or the cleverness of uh, other things that he taught on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is just, you know, part one, really. I'm not planning another book, but it, it, yeah. it's, it's just a, a taster of how much cleverness there is in the teaching of Jesus. Safe to say he would have been good on Twitter. Uh, if he had used it, yeah. He would be, which yeah. He, he might well not have. You sometimes, you sometimes do hear about the wisdom of Jesus, you know, the yes, wisdom of course, that yeah. Paul points out, but then even in the short sayings and things, the proverbial sayings of Jesus, mm-hmm. but, but this genius category is really different. And I love that in the first part of the book, you talk specifically about cleverness, uh, mm-hmm. that Jesus is not just doing set stuff. He's, in, he's engaging with people in a way that is brilliantly clever. It is insightful into the human heart. I mean, why, why, why are more people not talking about this teacher? Is it partly because if he wasn't Jesus, people would be saying he's the greatest, most clever teacher that ever lived? Or So uh, he's obviously left us with lots of these um, thing, things that, teachings that we have, and he's teaching, he says at the end of Matthew, that his disciples should go and teach people everything that he's commanded. So there's this fairly limited syllabus, about uh, four, four and a half hours worth of, um, text that is spoken by Jesus uh, in the Gospels, uh, which is just astounding for what it has. I mean, what I don't mention in the book is the insight behind saying, like, turn the other cheek, mm. uh, or the the golden rule, do unto others what you'd have them do to you, or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, or the truth will set you free. These are his memes. But you can't um, epitomize so much... Uh, unless you've got a deep understanding. It takes mm-hmm. deep understanding to be able to simplify, and that's what Jesus is able to do. He's able to simplify, but then when you look in the depth of what's alluded to in his stories, you see clearly he has a grasp on the Old Testament that's utterly incredible and which is demonstrable within his stories. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, it's interesting to me that people are quick to praise Paul as a genius. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some of that is the phenomenon that you've just pointed to, and some of it is what we're accustomed to thinking of as a genius. Mm-hmm. Paul is writing very differently than what we get from Jesus in the Gospels. The, the style, the content is delivered differently, maybe more suitable to kind of the way that we think about geniuses. Yes, well, I, I think Paul, there's, there's more argumentation. There seems to be more intellectual challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Jesus, you have this simplicity which right. is going through. And that's, um, you know, as it says at the end of Second Peter, some things in Paul's letters are difficult. Well, some things in Jesus' sayings are really difficult. Oh, but they're yeah. difficult in this very simple way at the same time. It's not that there's uh, any... Um, high-sounding vocabulary. Mm-hmm. It's actually very simple vocabulary most of the time, but it's very profound in how it sees into the human condition. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I love that point. I loved this book. I think everybody should read this book. Um, and we'll get into later, you know, the different groups that could benefit from this book. It's also really encouraging to me that you have a book like this. I know that you cited in here uh, Jesus the Great Philosopher that Jonathan mm-hmm. Pennington has written, yep. which is another book looking at a different aspect of yep. Jesus as a teacher and mm-hmm. a thinker and a, a sage. Yep. I think that's an amazing development. But all that to say, since it has gone under the radar, how did you start on this project? Where did the idea come from? Well, I've been teaching on Luke 15, the parable of the two sons, or sometimes called parable of the prodigal son, for a long time. And I particularly like it as a, an interactive Bible study. So often when I've gone to a new group, mm-hmm. uh, I've done this because uh, you can ask questions uh, from from the text. So um, what happens when the father gives the um, is asked by the younger son for his inheritance. What's he do? Mm-hmm. Everyone says he gives it to him. And you say, no, that's not what the text says. Mm. He says he gives it to them. And right. so you, you, you get this interaction or a man had two sons. Who, do, who does that remind you of in the Old Testament? And people might mm-hmm. say Adam. They might say Abraham. They might say Isaac. All of those are very useful answers because I think the story is meant to remind us of all three of those. Right. So it works very well as an interactive Bible study mm-hmm. um, the older brother was in the field. What was he doing in the field? Well, you imagine he's working. How does he feel? Um, younger son wastes money. How do you feel about people who waste money? So there are lots of um, questions that you can ask mm-hmm. based on this that work very well in that, in that sort of group. Of his teachings, this one seems like the perfect one to feature in the first part of this book. Did you have any rivals? Were you trying to decide between different ones? No, I, I, th- I think what I'd seen going on in this uh, story of the, I'd, I'd only seen parts of that in other stories. And, and mm-hmm. I actually, uh, in one chapter of the book, I go into some other elements in other stories. Um, but no, I, I, this is his longest story. And I think it in, in some ways it's a particular masterpiece. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, parables like The Good Samaritan, also utterly amazing. Right. The parable of the soils or the parable of the unsuccessful sower or the unstrategic right. sower he's very successful but he, <laughs> yeah, the he's, not, not, really, sower. Not, he's not, very, not very strategic um or whatever one, one wants to call it um that's also <clears throat> an amazing piece but amazing in a different way yes uh it, it's got a great simplicity uh to it uh, and uh depth as well as uh showing shallowness so yeah i i think you're right i think this is one of the most masterful stories that's ever been told and the fact that it is the longest story means there's even more to work with in it, and there's yep. even more packed in there. It does make me wonder, almost as a side question, why is this story and the rich man and Lazarus and the Good Samaritan only in Luke? Do you have any sense of that? 
Well, I, I suppose I imagine a curriculum going on in the early church, uh, based out of Jerusalem, which I think, in my view, and I'm not certain about this, it's, it's a theory, um, uh, feeds into what you get in Matthew and Mark. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's so much, and they're actually closer to each other than anything else. And right. uh, Luke goes and does research, and he's got a number of things which aren't in Matthew and Mark. Luke, um, John then comes along later and really writes to supplement. With those uh, in mind, yeah. Bearing in mind what's already mm-hmm. out there. Uh, so that's why I would see it as happening. But you do have elements that are replicated elsewhere. So, for instance, the, par- the, the story of the two sons is preceded uh, shortly before you've got the parable of lost sheep. Mm-hmm. You get a very similar parable of lost sheep in Matthew, mm-hmm. but I think it was clearly told on two different occasions. So um, Jesus, every all four Gospels present Jesus as repeating himself. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is... <clears throat> Where would something like this fit into Mark's gospel? Mark mm-hmm. has very little speech. So you've got Mark yes. chapter 4, chapter 7, um, chapter 13, but there's no extensive speech. Uh, there's not much extensive speech of Jesus. This really wouldn't fit within the scheme of what yeah. he's doing. Uh, then Matthew has his five big blocks of speech of Jesus. Well, which of those are we going to give up to replace this yeah. with? You know, it, it doesn't quite make sense. So I think when you look at the conception of those books, mm-hmm. um, this glorious story won't quite fit in there. No, I think that's right. And if, if you look at Matthew's teaching blocks, this is thematically similar. You know, mm-hmm. this lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, lost sons is, is thematically similar, but, but there's no obvious place where... But, and that's kind of the beauty of having four Gospels, mm-hmm. is that you, you do have things like this. Um, I, okay, so I think part of the brilliance of this story that's going to be new for a lot of readers is the, the deep connections of the story to the Old Testament. Yep. And so one of the chapters in the book is all about the connections with the book of Genesis. And this, I thought, was just fascinating. Probably a chapter that could have been 100 pages long. Yeah, you know, so I think that's the most significant out. chapter in the book, really. Mm-hmm. And if people are just going to read one book and uh, one chapter and they're already familiar with this I, I would say just go straight to chapter two and that's where you'll you'll see um what i feel are, are jaw-dropping mm-hmm. levels of depth in terms of the way this short 380 word eight word story connects with particularly the book of genesis yeah and and give us a couple of the highlights there i love the way you work into okay let's start with someone that has two sons Mm-hmm. But then let's look at particular features that might indicate who exactly we're talking about here. Yep. There's connections everywhere, but what's yeah, the strongest? So, so in, in, the, in, in the book, I work back from a man had two sons. Who's the most famous person in the Bible to have two and only two sons? That has to be Isaac. Right. And then, of course, you see in the story of Isaac having Esau and Jacob, the older brother, envious of the younger brother who has cheated him out of his entire inheritance mm-hmm. therefore younger brother has to go off into a far country and feed animals and then comes back mm-hmm. and at as he comes back there's this amazing verse genesis 33 verse 4 where esau you're expecting to be super angry runs embraces and kisses mm-hmm. his younger son and that is of course the exact phrase that jesus replicates in his uh, story and he's addressing scribes at the time that's one of the uh, groups that it mentions there at the beginning of Luke 15. So they know that that's the only time you get that phrase. They mm-hmm. actually have to remember what, what similar phrases are in the Bible uh, so they can distinguish them as they 
uh, copy things out. And so that's really astounding that um, in Jesus's story, the older brother has actually done very well. He's got his inheritance early and he's still envious and jealous of his younger brother. Um, and then in the case of Esau, who's a proverbial bad guy in the mm -hmm. Old Testament, he actually forgives his younger brother who's ripped him out of everything. Right. Um, and, and so that's an amazing lesson uh, to get. But um, a man had two sons. Often when I say, well, who in the Old Testament has two sons? I often get the answer, Adam. Mm -hmm. um, of course, Adam has some more sons later, but there was a time when he only had two sons. Right. And there you've got, again, the case of the older brother, envious of the younger brother, um, being accepted, and having this argument with God, um, and, and well, I mean, he, he kills his brother, and then there is this um, plea from from God for him, uh, you, know, you know, and and, and you, you see such a lot of similarity. But then, a, a man had two sons. You also, I often ask, yeah, who had two sons? And I get the the, the answer. Uh, Abraham, and of course, sure. that's really famous. The mm -hmm. Isaac, Ishmael, you think of uh, Christianity and Islam and the whole discussions about Abraham's two sons. That's mm -hmm. mega famous. He has some more sons later. But again, he's the only other father who gives away his inheritance while he's still alive. He's the first guy in the Bible to run, and he runs and says, quick. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the first word out of this father's mouth in Luke 15. Quick, three seers of flour, he says to Sarah. That's a number which Jesus uses in his shortest mm -hmm. parable, um, the parable of the woman who puts the leaven in three seers of flour until it's all leavened, and then he goes off and gets the fatted calf. Well, it's hard not to see Abraham there. Right. And, uh, of course, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, uh, it's not an equal uh, share of inheritance. Isaac gets everything, Ishmael gets nothing. That's all because Ishmael despises the feast given for the younger brother. So it takes a while to see all these things, but... Um, for me, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And there are lots and lots of subtle elements to it where I, I think you can almost argue that every phrase in Jesus's story has a parallel or an inversion right. in the Old Testament. That's some of the most fascinating pieces of the story is where he's taking something where you think you know where he's going and all of a sudden the story changes. Yeah, so I think part of it, he's not just retelling the story of, um, let's say, uh, Jacob and Esau because there are key twists in Jesus' story. It's not the brother who runs to welcome him. It's the father who runs. Mm -hmm. You could have had a story in which the brother runs and he was so glad to see mm -hmm. his, his um, little bro back that he ran and embraced and kissed him. But Jesus actually takes the Old Testament material mm -hmm. and says, actually, it's the father who does that. Right. And of course, the father in Jesus' story can see afar off in the story of Isaac. Uh, he can't see afar off. His mm -hmm. son has to come up very close. Uh, and there's actually a, a link about um, eating goats, young goats, in, in uh, between the stories as well. Or who says they're dying of hunger? Well, it's the younger brother in Jesus's story mm -hmm. who says, "Here I am, feeding the pigs, dying of hunger." And of course, that's exactly what Ishmael, uh, sorry, uh, Esau says when he's coming in from the hunt. Right. Here I am, dying of hunger. Um, there's another reversal of that with the story of Joseph that I think is connected because, of course, Joseph has the ring and the robe mm -hmm. suddenly brought out, uh, just as you have for the younger brother. He's the only other son who's dead and alive again uh, in his father's eyes. Um, so th that's very much like it. There's a time of famine, but Joseph is the one who gives food to everyone. Mm -hmm. So there's this contrast between no one gives him anything, Joseph gave food to everyone. Right. Um, so lots and lots of connections there in, mm -hmm. in, in the story. It, at one point in this 
chapter, you do a summary and you say there's several features, four features that should impress us about this story. There are allusions that are very specific. There are so many allusions. The allusions are particularly concentrated in Genesis and the allusions carry moral challenges exactly suited to an audience of Pharisees and scribes. The context of who Jesus is telling this story to, once you list yeah. out a lot of these allusions, the specificity, the Genesis storyline, given that context, what do you think Jesus is really doing with this parable that we sometimes miss by applying it to ourselves? Well, I think what we can sometimes mistakenly um, jump to is equating people in the parables with particular other figures. So it's very easy to equate the Father with God. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the Father um, can be equated with God. Mm -hmm. I think the Father um, symbolizes a lot about God. Sure. But also the Father's a challenge to us that we should run like the Father to welcome people. Mm -hmm. So the problem is if you say the Father is God, full stop, your work's done there, mm -hmm. it stops you using that as a model for how you should behave. Right. So what I, I, I want uh, to allow is that the, uh, the, the story can set off more resonances. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously the, the story does teach us that God welcomes back the sinner. That's a, that mm -hmm. a really... Key, key part of it but don't let's not be challenged by the thought that we could actually do what that father has done yeah well in the two stories before that should set our you know as a reader they should set our expectations for that too because you have celebration at the end of the first two mm -hmm. then at the end you have this scene where you have the father who has celebrated the son and the servants and everybody are having this party the older brother doesn't go in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have a choice between those two. What will mm -hmm. we do? Mm -hmm. Which one will we be yeah. like? And, that, and in that case, we're, we're emulating the Father. Yeah. You know, in the same way that we can say, God welcomes. I mean, there's, there's just more to that than, okay, this is... And, and this is kind of a, a bad way of reading parables anyway, is to say, this character is this, this character is this, this character is this. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind that in the sense that Matthew 13 sort of does that, mm -hmm. uh, where Jesus unpacks one of his own... Uh, parables and, yes. and says, you know, uh, the harvesters of the angels and, and so on. So I, I don't mind equations. Well, uh, just in the sense that yeah. parables are not like allegories where it's one character has one specific, you yeah. know, track. I mean, I'm, I mean allegory is a very debated word nowadays. I'm not entirely against that. I think, uh, yeah, there's been a bit of an overreaction against allegory and parable. Mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, I just think there's, there's more than allegory as well. Right. Yeah, so... So Jesus is challenging us as readers. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Why tell a story that has so many close allusions to the Old Testament, to the scribes specifically? Well, just at the end of chapter 14, he said that the one who has ears to hear, hear. And there is a thing about the way Jesus teaches that you could listen to it a thousand times and not get its moral point if you're not actually listening mm -hmm. with your ears to hear. So if you take heed then you can learn from this great teacher. But he's also a teacher that you can be in front of and not learn from. I mean, that's, that's, that's the clear case in the man who comes up to Jesus and, and, uh, and asks, asks the question, wanting to test him. Uh, he's actually wanting to show off in front of people how much he knows. Sure. He's got the best opportunity he ever had to have a masterclass, and he's turning it down. So that's where I think Jesus tells this story in a way where the lessons are morally structured those who seek will find those who don't seek will stumble so as you listen to this story you find that there's more and more to learn um 
whether it's the example of Abraham welcoming uh, people, the uh, bad example of Ishmael despising his, the acceptance of his younger brother, whether it's the bad example of, of Cain, uh, it's, or the um, good example of Joseph who forgave his brothers after what they did, um, the surprisingly good example of even Esau mm-hmm. <laughs> forgiving his uh, brother. So all of these are things where there's a moral challenge with these stories. Mm-hmm. If we go back to the scope of the book, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this book, the way you wrote it, is you're speaking to two audiences, mm-hmm. somewhat in the way that you have Jesus speaking to multiple audiences in <laughs> yeah. the in the, in the not analysis as well, of not it. As well, yeah. You 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 clearly have a scholarly audience, um, if not in mind in the book. There's some arguments here that are powerful scholarly yep. arguments. Yeah. And the arc of the book um, through the later chapters does does bear out an argument. Um, that has a little bit more academic implications yes. in terms of defending that these these stories really did come from Jesus. Yes. And uh, so you have that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have uh, takeaways that any Bible reader should sure. read this and know. So I, I want to spend a little bit of time on both. Yep. Um, the, the first one being some of, the, some of the more academic arguments. You know, what was interesting is preparing for this, I went back and listened to a couple of your talks, and uh, I listened to your debate with Bart Ehrman mm-hmm. three or four years ago. And I think it was because I had read this book, but I could hear some of the seeds of this book mm-hmm. in that because you were making some points that you flesh out in this book, like one of the reasons that we can, because the, the, the debate is over, can we trust the transmission of the text, basically? Mm-hmm. Well, one reason is because we believe what we have, the clearest and best explanation is it came from Jesus. Mm-hmm. That point is really central to the last part of this book. Um, what, who else are you arguing against, or what kinds of maybe apologetic concerns did you have when you wrote this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's not so much that I'm trying to argue against something. There's obviously a whole way of what people approaching the Gospels, which is different from what mm-hmm. I'm doing. And I'm not so much wanting to knock that down as establish something different. Mm-hmm. So if you take each of the Gospels on its own, each one of them tells you Jesus said the same thing more than once. Because mm-hmm. even within Matthew, Jesus says the same thing more than once. Jesus does that in Mark, Luke, John. Now, what happens in the way people study the Gospels is they often like align them horizontal and they say that this verse in this Gospel is the same time and occasion as this verse in the other Gospel, which yes. may be true. Yeah. Um, but... People ask questions, well, which did Jesus say? Did he say blessed are the poor, uh, as in Luke, or did he say blessed are the poor in spirit, as in Matthew? But if you read through John, you'll have uh, Jesus saying, I am the shepherd and I am the good shepherd. And, and, and you, you'll, you'll mm-hmm. um, find variations on the same saying within an extended speech of his. Well, right. which did he say? Um, and so what, what you find is that um, you uh, need to have proper allowance for the fact that Jesus could say the same thing mm-hmm. more than once uh, within a discourse or if he, I mean, I'm an itinerant speaker and I, I go around and, and use similar phrases, slightly different phrases time and time again. Mm-hmm. And so do skeptics like, Bart Ehrman do that time and time again. Yeah. Sometimes he'll say that we only have copies of copies of copies with three, and sometimes he'll say copies of copies of copies of copies yeah. you know, with four. Which one did he and, say? And which one did he say? And he, he said both, and many times. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, was he in Atlanta or in Dallas when he said that? Actually, he was, you know, he said it in both. Right. Uh, and so um, recognizing that 
that's the way Jesus uh, speaks. And that it's not that we have Jesus' teachings through a narrow band of transmission, but through a thick band of transmission. Mm-hmm. There are multiple people who hear this, he says it on multiple occasions. That's just a, a different model um, for looking at the Gospels. Then I've got a very positive view about um, how much of what Jesus is reported to say, he actually says, I think the whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and people often get worried and they might learn in seminary this debate about um, the, do we have the ipsissima verba of Jesus, yeah. the very words or the ipsissima vox, just the, the, the very voice. Uh, and uh, people get worried about these and you know, throw around Latin phrases because it makes it sound like a more learned discussion. Yes. Um, and it really is quite unnecessary uh, when you think about, okay, they don't have ancient quotation marks back then, so that's, that makes things a bit different. Sometimes a bit of Jesus' speech will be embedded within something, so it's not that you can just isolate those words out. Mm-hmm. But effectively, Jesus repeats himself, and we're hearing it from multiple witnesses. So I don't need to um, have this loose view about what yeah. Jesus said. I can have a very positive view, that, and, and particularly with a, a story like this where every word is counting towards its artistic end and uh, it, it really has to come from one mind. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I do in the book is argue why that can't be Luke. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously it fits very well within Luke, so that would be an argument mm-hmm. for it being Luke, but that doesn't have the same explanatory power. It doesn't explain why um, uh, there are so many features of the five stories that we get in Luke 15 to 16 which need to come from a, a rabbi from the land of Israel, um, so, or some, someone who is trained in rabbinic, rabbinic knowledge, and also ha- has exactly the same patterns of speech as we find in material in the other Gospels, which is not paralleled in Luke. Yes. So unless you're going to go this, the way of saying Luke's the first Gospel, the others copied it, which mm-hmm. I know some people are, are, are toying with that now, but it's, it's still quite a peripheral view, then you don't really explain things. And even if you do go that route, you won't explain things. Yeah. So the, the really simple way of explaining things is just that this all comes from one brilliant teacher. It's... Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's the simplest explanation is the best. I think sometimes people can be wary of simple explanations because they're so simple. Mm-hmm. But this this is simple and has a lot of explanatory power. Yes. Yeah, that was one of the things that jumped out to me is, if you know, you study Luke and Acts specifically. I mean, John maybe next, but in the ancient Greek world, you read something like the Iliad. Okay, mm-hmm. did Agamemnon really give this speech? No. Homer, you know if this happened at all, took mm-hmm. it and made it for his artistic yeah, yeah, purposes, yeah. you know. And essentially, do we do we know that Paul said exactly that on Mars Hill? Well, no, probably it's the sense of it and it's repeated. To me, this, this argument really does undermine the very premises of applying that kind of model back onto Luke and Acts. Yeah, so people often quote this thing um, where you have a very, very long speech in Thucydides mm-hmm. and uh, a bit of... Uh, where he says that he was aiming to say the sort of things that people would would have said on the occasion. Right, right. There's a similar case with Josephus recording a massively long speech um, uh, of of one of the rebels against uh, the Romans, where you know they all seem to have died, and you wonder how on earth does this speech get recorded? Right. But for Jesus, it's really quite different. We're talking about a three-minute um, story, which could have been told on many occasions Mm -hmm. 
when you have something like what I call the lesson on the mount, not the sermon on the mount, um, where it says he went up on the mount and taught them, and it's Matthew 5 through to 7, he could have taught them, now repeat after me, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what yes. teaching can involve. Exactly. So, um, you know, it's rather than saying, ah, people back then had to memorize 12 minutes of speech in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you've got in Matthew 5 through mm-hmm. 7. You take seriously the fact that they were up the mountain for a good long time and he was giving them a lesson. Right. So, and also the disciples have heard some of these sayings again and again. I mean, why come up with something as cool as the Beatitudes oh, and, and it, only use them once? And in an oral culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there we, are other we elements. Maybe we maybe don't give in. them enough credit because we ourselves would struggle to remember that. Yeah, so you can always make the argument oral culture, people memorized more back then. We can make arguments about them having... Um, wax tablets that they took down notes mm-hmm. on and all of that's possible um, I'm just bringing to it the additional thing of once you repeat things lots mm-hmm. uh, this is not so difficult so um, I, I think that applying this idea of ancient speeches were just made up to be the sort of thing people said uh, to Luke 15 won't explain what we get mm-hmm. uh, in here which is a brilliant short story, the like of which I do not know, by someone who clearly has mastered the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So the way I kind of read that argument, I think this is. Pow- I think there's powerful implications for this in in the way we understand the Gospels. Is this and the others, especially this block of teaching, brilliant? They are cohesive, but they're also related. They are told by someone with a very firm grasp of the Hebrew Scriptures. The other parables show, not even just in Luke anymore, across the Gospels, similarities that are strong enough that we can infer that they came from the same mind. Mm-hmm. And the simplest and best explanation is that mind is Jesus. Yeah. That's kind of how I read the argument in the book. Yeah, and I, I think in some ways, although this is a book I'm writing for you know, a popular audience, yes. and they, they will probably find chapter four the hardest going and... Uh, maybe the least uh, inspiring, which is where I'm arguing it does actually come from uh, Jesus. And in a sense, that's where I've got to cover that line of argument in case people say, oh, it's just, yes, it is genius, but it's the genius of Mm -hmm. of Luke. Um, That I'm hoping in some ways to model a new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. I could use a fancy word like paradigm, but but Mm -hmm. um, I think that we have got rather caught in trying to show how anything could possibly get through from Jesus into the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, and and, <laughs> yeah. and a, a lot of the whole model there, where commonly people say, well, you've got Mark's Gospels, the earliest Gospel, and then you, you've got the material which is common to Matthew and Luke, which you call a lot of people call Q. Mm-hmm. And so you've got these couple of sources, and it's as if there's just two narrow bands yes. of communication from Jesus into the Gospels, and then some people say, yeah, but there is another band. There is a little bit of Jesus gets into John's Gospel as well. So you've got sort of two and a half bands of information. And I want to say, well, what if you allow uh, the fact that if we take this story as a whole, we're looking for who could be the origin of this story. Mm -hmm. It seems 
that the best candidate we know of mm-hmm. is this named character called Jesus. He's, he's known, he's, he's written about, it's actually attributed to him mm-hmm. uh, in, in the text. Yeah, the burden uh, of proof is yeah, kind of an interesting yeah. thing. Now, what if, we, what if we start with that hypothesis? And it's a bit like, I don't know how you got here this morning. I imagine you got by car, but you, you, you could have come by any sort of means. And that you can actually encounter someone, know that you're encountering them without knowing how they came to be where they are. Mm-hmm. So I think you can rationally say this comes from Jesus and have an open mind about the method by which it was transmitted from Jesus into the gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is a secondary issue. It's a lovely, fascinating issue, but it's still a secondary Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Let me give you what I think. I I was going to say the most underrated argument in the book, but I don't know that it's been rated yet. But there's a sneaky great argument in this book on page 95 that I loved. And I, I think people will... This really made me stop and think about how you read this. You say... What is more, even in the unlikely scenario that a gospel writer was a much better storyteller than the teacher, there is a subtle assertion in a lot of commentaries yeah. that that is the case. But he credited his stories to the gospel writer would have had no reason to put in such a wealth of references to Genesis into such a short story unless he had an audience of Bible scholars in mind, which is exactly not the audience that somebody like Luke tells us they have. Exactly. In mind. Yeah. These have to be. They have to have been spoken in a context that makes sense yes. for them to make sense being where they are in these Gospels. I thought that was a great Yeah, so, so basically, it's not only that this comes from Jesus, but it actually is given to exactly the audience that it's described as mm-hmm. in Luke's Gospel. That a later Gospel writer wouldn't um, need yeah, to and, worry about unless they were actually reporting on yeah, what happened. He's got this fourfold audience where he's got scribes, Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners. The simplicity of the story... Mm-hmm makes it look like it must have some addressees other than intellectuals. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just so simple, and there it's got tax collectors and sinners. And yet, it's also got these scribes who will be getting things out of it that other people are not. Right. Part of the brilliance is to be able yeah. to teach to all those people. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you do a lot of work in apologetics, and mm-hmm. a lot of your uh, time, I, th- I would imagine, is spent thinking about how to best communicate to people that are skeptical, mm-hmm. that are not believers, but that are interested. And I've heard enough of your talking to know that you are an intellectual. You have a fabulous mind and grasp of research, but that that's not all it takes to do good apologetics. What Beyond just information and argument, what are some of the essentials for somebody who's looking to reach people today? Well, I mean, I think apologetics can be problematic. I mean, I, I often say, you know, show me a heresy that hasn't come from apologetics. As right. in, you know, in the early church, Marcion in the second century was doing apologetics by trying to um, split off things from the Old Testament, which he felt was embarrassed, embarrassed by, and all sorts of things down history have been like that. So I, I don't think apologetics is entirely a good thing. And um, also people can be using apologetics to shore up um, an unsettled faith uh, where they haven't really uh, come to the point where they're willing to trust uh, God. So I think that's where uh, apologetics is really about uh, a tidy mind. Um, so mm-hmm. you could do amazing exercise regimes and then be hit by a horrible disease which overcomes your exercise regimes. It doesn't mean the exercise regimes are a bad thing. Right. So apologetics is just a healthy thing to do mm-hmm. um it doesn't it's not a guarantee uh that you're you know going to uh, win arguments or that lots of other people are, are going to find this equally health, helpful uh but it is part of um 
just a the fact that we're supposed to love God with all our minds means that we should be thinking through the implications of faith. Um, um, we're making, as Christians, real-world claims. We're not mm-hmm. claiming that there's some fancy Narnia world um, and that that's all a nice story. We're saying it's more than a nice story mm-hmm. and really happened. So uh, I'm wanting to address that, um, and I like to write in a genre which I think both Christians and non-Christians can relate to. I think if I aim for a patient non-Christian who's prepared to uh, take time to look at this, I will also pick up lots of Christians who will benefit uh, from this. Uh, So that's why I'm very happy having a dual audience with Mm -hmm. both of these books, that this and the previous one, Can We Trust the Gospels? Well, I do think that kind of faith-seeking understanding as a model for certain kinds of what we call apologetics Mm -hmm. is really helpful. I mean, this isn't just to get you from the outside in. This is to work on how we think, tidying up our minds Mm -hmm. as believers. I mean, I think there's huge value in that. Um, But before we close, I I wanted to ask just about your formation as a scholar Mm -hmm. and as a thinker. Maybe give us a sense of when some of these ideas started to take their root in you and how did that start to manifest in your career? And what do you mean by these ideas? Well, that that you did want to do what we would call apologetics. Or yeah, that you, sure. That you wanted to not just yeah, so study for its own sake, but turn outward. There's a range of things. So I, I grew up in a Christian family and was greatly benefited from a parachurch youth group, which um, Young Life, which is different from Young Life in the U- US, in the UK, which very much stressed reading the Bible through once a year. That was very helpful. So I'd read mm-hmm. the Bible through several times before I even went to university. Um, at university, then getting introduced to some of the Bible languages, I'd, I'd done Greek and Latin at school, but going on to Hebrew and Aramaic, I came across people who knew the Bible really well, didn't believe it, and that sent me questioning and doubting for a while. And uh, I'd say God brought me through that, um, and I started you know, reading lots of things, which uh, some of which were able to answer questions and some not, uh, but then also sharing those answers. Um, and... Over time, I think my thinking's evolved um, where I, I now hope I, I, I can see um, the academy in its right place. That is a very important um, uh, institution that uh, we can stretch our minds fully and make discoveries and so on. But it's fairly common um, to say that an academic cannot see the wood for the trees uh, they're looking at the individual trees. They cannot see the forest as a whole. And uh, that there are issues in the academy which um, we need to be able to sit looser to. I mean, the, uh, Christ was convicted by the highest academic body of his land. Mm. Um, so uh, an academic body can really go very wrong. Right. Um, a, so they're not necessarily the best people at getting perspective. They're now, of course, there are lots and lots of individual academics who, who do get good perspective and people, plenty of people who are not academics who also have uh, a bad perspective on things. But um, we've got to distinguish between technical expertise and real wisdom. Mm. So um, a doctor can have technical expertise, medical expertise, but they still don't have... Um, necessarily the wisdom to um to advise you on your health matters that's why it's Mm -hmm. important for the patient to be making their own decisions uh, when uh, they can and humans have their their vices and within uh knowledge pursuing circles like 
universities, there's also just the human element of people's own careers, people's own cowardice, that they don't want to speak out because they're looking to uh, go further up a particular career progression and so on. That comes into the sociology of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that means that we want both to respect what the academy can offer in terms of resources and technical expertise at the same time as we sit loose mm. to the, um, uh, some of the uh, pretensions that can happen in the big sociology of the academy. And I think um, it, it's the easy thing for people to do, I mean, is to believe simple things. Mm -hmm. So either believing the academy is entirely good or entirely bad, okay, with a little bit of exception, mm -hmm. that's an easy thing. But actually to get um, right in there um, and uh, unpick the good from the bad, e even though it, it can be <laughs> uh, quite painstaking, uh, I think that's the thing we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Well, and you doing that is such a gift to the church. Tyndall House, the work that you all do there is a gift to the church. Um, this new book, The Surprising Genius of Jesus, is a great gift to the church. And so thank you for writing it. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. We'll be right back.